Have you ever had something happen in your life that you really just wanted everybody to know about? Like people you knew, people you didn't know, you were so excited or it was so impactful, it was so, I don't know. Anybody ever have anything like that happen? No? Have you ever done something that you just wanted to keep to yourself? Oh, that's easy, huh? <laughs> you are bad. Yeah, we won't talk about that. Now, I think I think we've all had in our lives, I think, where's my clicker? There it is. Things that we have enjoyed that we would like to, uh, okay, let me, let me tell you one of them. Anybody seen these white fudge-covered Oreos that are in the stores around wintertime, Christmas time? Yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't know how to describe it for me. It's like I love them with a love unparalleled by many things in my life. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. And I love them so much, I don't want to tell other people about them because I want them all. So like I bought two boxes a couple weeks ago and when I carried them in, they saw them. The kids saw them, so I had to share them. Which stunk, sorry. But I did finish the box last night, by the way. There were four left, I ate them all. <clears throat> there are those things that bring us joy that we want to keep to ourselves. But there are also those things that bring us joy that we want to share with everybody. We just want everybody to know. Favorite restaurant, anybody ever gone out and just told somebody, man, I ate at this place last night, it was great, it was fantastic. I, you need to go. You want them to share that experience with you. And then what, you ever had this happen? You go to a place and you love it and you tell somebody like, oh, go check that out. And then they come back and they're like, I didn't like it. And you're like, what? It's unfathomable. It's unfathomable. It's without fathom. Because you just can't imagine how you couldn't enjoy that. How in the world that was the best thing that, that I've ever had in my life and you don't like it. Or, or they come back and they say, man, that was great. I told other people about it. And the word begins to spread. And then your favorite restaurant becomes so crowded you can't get into it, right? What we're going to talk about this morning is the good news of justification by faith. Did God want to keep that in His little select group? Or did He want to tell everybody about it? Did He want the Oreos all to Himself? Or did he want to share that joy with everybody in the world? You're like, well, that's easy, is it? Huh? Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. We are in point 2, and we will be in point 2 for one more week. Next week we finish up point 2. Next week we will be a quarter of the way done with Romans. I don't know how long it's been. I haven't counted the messages or the weeks, but a quarter of the way done, but we're about to jump into the deep end of the pool. This has all been good. This has all been revelatory for me. But man, once we get into chapter 5, you're going to want to tell everybody about it. Not this, but this. So we saw sin. Everybody of all time... Scripture through Romans chapter 1-1 through 3-20. Everybody's been closed up under sin. 
And you're thinking, why do you keep going over this week after week after week? Why do I keep going over it week after week after week? It's the best way you learn. Repetition, repetition, repetition. So you know what we're going to do as long as we're in Romans? We're going to go over this little thing here so that you know where we're at. So chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, everybody, everybody sitting in this room, everybody that's ever been born is a sinner, has been a sinner, and needs to be made right with God, which brings us to our second point, justification by faith, the means for being right with God. And then we'll get into the later things later, obviously. So that's where we're at. <clears throat> I keep talking about this. Big deal. Expiation is God taking the guilt of our sin away. Propitiation is God venting His wrath against our sin so that it's satisfied. Imputation is God giving us Christ's righteousness. Justification is we can stand in God's presence rightfully as holy, redeemed people, which is our salvation. Which brings us to our passage today. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. And really... 9 through 25 makes a real good unit, but you just can't cover it all. You can't cover it all. So we broke it off at 17. We'll do 18 through 25 next week. But today we are going to read Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. If you would stand with us out of respect for the Word of God and out of respect for the God of the Word. <clears throat> Romans 4, starting in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make Him the Father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and void. Uh, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let me pray. God, we've got a lot to cover today, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, it would not only be covered, but that it would be understood, apprehended, and then by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that it would be lived out, that we would see the joy that you have for all the nations and that we would share in that joy, and that we would share that joy. And that we would see the blessing of being made right with you through faith. And may we know the key to all of it as we look in this passage. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 9, obviously. 
obviously, because that's the first verse of the passage. So where else would you start, right? Well, you could start by going backwards and talking about what we talked about last week. We'll get into that. Verse 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, so my first question is, and listen, there's going to be a lot of questions. There's going to be a lot of logic and a lot of reasoning today. You ready for that? Are you excited for that? Ooh, logic and reasoning. That's exactly why I woke up today. You're going to have to really think with me today. Hopefully, I'll make it to where you don't have to think to the point that you're confused in your head. But there's a lot of fours in this passage. If you were watching, there's a lot of fours and so that's and order that. There's a lot of that here. So we've got to try to connect all that together. So my first question as we reason this out is, why is this question here? Is this blessing? What blessing is he talking about? Paul has been mentioning this idea throughout the book so far. Jews only or Gentiles only. And if you'll remember, if you, if you have your Bibles in front of you, the blessing that he's talking about is the blessing of having your sins forgiven. We finished our passage last week from the quote from uh, Psalm 32 that David had, how blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are forgiven. So that's what this is referencing here. Is this blessing, what blessing? The blessing of having your sins forgiven, not having your sins counted against you. That's what we're talking about here. And then the question is, is it for the Jews only? Is it for the circumcised only? That would be the Jews. Or is it for circumcised and for uncircumcised? Jews only or Jews and Gentiles? Now listen, I can't tell you strongly enough how highly, how important the Jews thought of circumcision. They absolutely, positively believed and an Orthodox Jew today still believes if they're not Messianic Jews, which means they've placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, if they haven't done that, they believe that circumcision is what gets you into heaven. It's that important. The rabbinical teachings would say anybody who is not circumcised will not see heaven. And they actually even go as far as, for those of you who know what circumcision is, they say that if somebody is circumcised and then backslides or begins to worship idols, that he has to have his circumcision undone because no circumcised person can go to hell. Do you understand that? No, I don't know. I don't get it either. How do you undo a circumcision? But that's how much, that's how, that's how highly they think of this. They think that that is their salvation, that circumcision is their salvation. So Paul has been pounding on this point. Is this blessing of righteousness through faith only for Jews or is it for Jews and Gentiles? And he has been pounding it. It's so important to not take these messages that we're going through right now in singular. It's all connected. Paul's train of thought runs systematically through the whole book. So he's already been grappling with this question and here he's reinforcing what he's already said, both about this and the rest of the passage which deals with grace and faith as opposed to works. 
What's the best way to learn something? I'm going to ask you again. Repetition, repetition, repetition. You're saying, will you please quit saying that? No, I will not. So stop asking. And Paul shows that throughout this book, he is going to repeat himself and repeat himself, but he's going to tie this repetition in with another link, another link in the chain. As he goes to another link, he's going to remind you of the links that came before it. We left the end of chapter 3 talking about boasting, not being an option in the realm of righteousness. That thought continued through the first part of chapter 4. Now don't you think Paul may be purposefully attacking the ethnic and spiritual pride of his Jewish readers? For at least a couple of thousand years, now let me say that again, for at least a couple of thousand years, the Jewish people had seen two types of people in the world. Them, as God's chosen people, and everyone else who were not God's chosen people. And though the very notion itself should destroy boasting, because remember, even Abraham had no room for boasting, having been chosen by God based on no merit of his own, but simply because of the sovereign choosing of a gracious God, even though they knew that, the Jews elevated themselves above the Gentiles, or a non-Jew. They were God's chosen people in the world. Everybody else was not. They carried around a sort of pride that said, we're God's people and you're not. They were the cool kids in God's economy to them, at least in their own minds. So why would Paul attack this so? I think because it strikes at the very heart of this letter, which is, anybody remember what we said the, the theme of Romans is? Anybody? That's been a while ago. To put it simply, how to be right with God. That's the theme of the book of Romans. Or the verse that uh, Hamlet preached way back when, which was, the just shall live by what? The just shall live by faith. That's the theme of the book of Romans. If God had chosen Abraham as an individual or the Jewish people as a nation because of their works, then Romans is null and void. And Paul's whole premise for it is wrong. It's not about grace, if it's not about grace. If it's not about faith, then what would it be about? It would be about works. But it's not. It's about worshiping God if you're a Jew and it's about works. It's about worshiping God from the age of three, which is what they said we talked about last week that Abraham did in their tradition. It's about never sinning. It's about keeping the law perfectly. And it's about showing that you're better than everyone else. But verse 9 asks, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? The blessing of being right with God, the blessing of not having your sins counted against you. Who's it for? Is it only for circumcised people? In other words, the Jews. Or is it for the whole world? If it's only for circumcised people, an outward act has to be done to receive that blessing. But, Paul says, we say that faith was counted. Remember that word? That accounting term? That faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, not circumcision. The inner act 
not the outward act, determined Abraham's righteousness. And if it's based on faith, would it not then be available to everyone? Let's move on to the next verse. How then was it counted to him, to Abraham? How was this blessing of righteousness, this blessing of having your sins forgiven, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now we touched on this a little bit last week. And I think this is more to the point than what we just asked. Remember last week we talked about the difference in Paul's Romans statements and James's statements in his epistle? We're saying that Paul's hammer in righteousness by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone, by faith alone. And then James comes along and says, man is not justified by faith alone, but by works as well. And we talked about who was right, and we said they're both right. Right? What preceded what? Faith preceded circumcision. So faith preceded works. And that was one of our application points last week. So then Paul makes that clearer by referencing the timeline of Genesis. Was it before he was circumcised that he was counted righteousness or was it after? Now I really wanted this to be a little clearer than it was. <laughs> I'm sure you can see that. This is a lifeline of Abraham. A timeline of Abraham's life. Now let me show you something. If, if you can see... Come to right here. Right here is where God made His covenant. These are the animals split apart, by the way. And the blood path that God walked through. And it was here where Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Right here at this point. Now if you go up the road a little bit in Abraham's life, here's the knife. Here's where he circumcised himself and all of his household. Okay? So you got a gap here. And if you look at the biblical timeline... Abraham was probably around 84, 85, 86-ish, probably around this time of the covenant being established. And he was 99 years old when he was circumcised. So you've got at least, at least a 14-year period between those two things. When was he counted as righteous by his faith? Was it here? At circumcision, or was it here at the covenant? It was at the covenant. Huh, thank you. To the left, to the left of the timeline. And that's the question that Paul is asking here. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Now that's a simple question. He was made right with God. His faith was credited to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. Is that important? Hmm? The answer is yes, Jason. It is important. Genesis 15 came, gave us the promises of the covenant. Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99, is when he was circumcised. His faith and his righteousness preceded his works, his visible outward works of circumcision. And we'll talk more about this in application. So let's go on to the next verses. Keep that in your mind. That's very important. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose 
was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make Him the Father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, how many of you understand those two verses? Yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff right there. That's a lot of words together. That's a flow of thought that we're going to try to piece together here because it's important. Okay? Stay with me. So why circumcision then? He received the sign of circumcision. Why? What's it say? As a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now watch what happens here. <clears throat> he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. We're going to piece all this together. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now let me show you this visually. The purpose was, Paul says, the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That was the purpose of what? Of circumcision. Of, not of circumcision, I'm sorry. The purpose in all of this was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised. And that purpose was realized so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make Abraham the father of the circumcised who was made righteous, walked in faith before he was circumcised. Now, it's going to be important to see this phraseology coming up here. Okay, So why circumcision then? If it didn't make him righteous, and it didn't, then why have him do it? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Note two words in that, sign and seal. The Motown song come in your mind? Sign, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. I guess concerning circumcision, sign, sealed, dismembered, I'm yours? I don't know. <coughs> circumcision was a sign. Now what does that mean? What is a sign? Where else is this word and practice used in the Bible? Where else do we see a sign? I think about Noah. Right? Was there a sign given to Noah of the covenant that God made with him? After the flood, God promised to never again destroy the earth by water. And what did He do? Okay. He gave a rainbow for what purpose? As a sign. I'm going to make you a promise, God says. I'm never going to destroy the world again with water. He didn't say He wasn't ever going to destroy the world again. He said He would never do it again by water. And He said, as a sign, as a reminder, I'm going to put my bow in the clouds so that when I see this sign, when you see this sign, you'll remember the promise that I made with you. So the rainbow was a sign of the covenant. Was the rainbow the covenant? No. It was a sign of the covenant. Here in our text, what is the sign? Circumcision is the sign. It is not the covenant. Just like the promise 
just like the rainbow was not the promise that God made, circumcision is not the covenant that God made with the Jews. It is a sign of the covenant. The earlier act, like we've already seen, of God declaring Abraham righteous because of his faith was the covenant. And circumcision was given as a sign of that promise, that covenant. What was the other word, a sign, and what else? Circumcision was given as a sign so that it might be a seal. Thank you. A sign and a seal. What is a seal? That can mean a few things, but the main thought pattern is of a king or other official who would send a letter with his words in it. He wrote the words down or dictated them. Somebody wrote them down. And when he sent it out, he would seal that letter up. We do it in an envelope today. If you get an envelope that's not sealed in the mail, you're thinking somebody tampered with my stuff, right? What they would do back then is they would take usually like wax or something soft and they'd put it on the end of the letter so that the letter would stay together. They'd roll it up and they'd put a seal on it. They'd put that wax on it and the king would have a ring or a stamp type thing that, that showed that it was kind of like a signature. And he would press that ring or that stamp into that soft waxy thing to show this comes from the king. And if that wax was broken, they knew that somebody had tampered with the letter. And usually if you tampered with the king's letter, you got killed back then. So the seal was given to show this is from the king. You with me? The stamp was his exclusive indicator that this letter was official and it was from him, and that's what a seal is. Here, circumcision was the sign that was given as God's stamp, God's signature on the sign of circumcision. It's Him pressing His stamp to say, this is from me, so you'll know that this promise came from me. The, steel, the seal or the stamp was, were not the words from the king or the official, in this case God, but that seal proved that the words, or then in this case the sign, was from Him. Does that make sense? Are you with me? No? Kind of? No? It's kind of weird to think about circumcision being a seal, right? But this was very important to the Jewish readers. This is from me so that you'll know that you are mine. So circumcision was given to Abraham 15 years at least after he was declared righteous as a way for God to confirm visibly that Abraham, to verify to Abraham that he was God's and that his being declared righteous was God's work. And Paul is quick to point out that after this was done, that it was done after, circumcision was done after he was declared righteous. Abraham was declared righteous well before he was circumcised. And that's important. And why was it important? Here. Paul says the purpose to make, the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, those who aren't circumcised, and to make Abraham the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, let's put all that together. The purpose was so that and and are big words in this phrase. That's why we've got them up here. Purpose, so that, and. Those are big words. Those tie this all together. The purpose was what? 
to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised. And why is that important? So that righteousness would be counted to them as well and so that to make Abraham the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the faith like Abraham before he was circumcised. Now do you follow that? Because it's pretty important that you do. Follow Paul's logically laid out arguments so you can grab a hold of what he's saying. Every word that he speaks is purposeful and it's leading somewhere. So why is this a big deal? Because if Abraham is justified by faith and he is the model of being declared righteous, anyone who can put their faith in God can be justified. They don't have to be circumcised. Or in other words, it will not depend on their works, but it will depend on the faith that they put in God. It makes justification available to anyone and everyone. Not just those who observe the sign of circumcision. And that's good news of great joy for all the nations. That means anybody can express faith in God, whether they were born into the Jewish nation nation or not. Now, stay with me. We're going to look at the rest of the passage, 13 through 17 in one big chunk. Okay? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Again, that's a lot of information. Let's try to tie it all together. Now these verses are pretty good. Pretty good. Let's go back here. Ah. Four. Now how many, we're going to see this word a lot right here. Four, 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 four. And I went over too many pages. There we go. Four, four, four. That is why in order that. That's how this passage will progress. 4, 4, 4. That is why, in order that. Considering what we just looked at, that said the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all those who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness could be counted to them and to make him the father of those who walk in faith, we move to a for statement. All of what was just said was said for, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So, to tie that into the previous thought, we had seen that Abraham was made the father of those who walked in his footsteps of faith for or because the promise to Abraham and his offspring to be heirs of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Not law but faith. And what do these children of Abraham become? What does it say there? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be what? 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 That he would be heir of what? 
heir of the world, heir of the world, that he and they would become heirs of the world. Now that's huge. Those who have the same righteousness as Abraham by faith will inherit the world. And not this fallen, broken, messed up, scary, beautiful world that we're living in right now, but the world that, be, that will be renewed and restored in perfection under the kingship of Jesus, which is kind of what we sang about this morning. Anybody want the world? Eh, maybe, I don't know, seems like a lot of work. <laughs> when I worked for Advanced Auto Parts, in the middle of my five-year tenure there, they rolled out a bonus program. <clears throat> Anybody ever had a bonus program at work? Anybody? Have they ever been attainable? Very rarely were they attainable. This one was attainable. And what our boss said was, this bonus program is given so that you might make more money than you can imagine. Like, what? And he asked me, he asked me in the meeting, he said, Jason, he said, how much would you be happy to make in a bonus for the year? How much would you like to add to your salary? And I was like, $5,000, man. That'd be. He's like, you're thinking too small. For real? He said, yeah, you're thinking too small. He said, this bonus program was set up to give you more than you could imagine in your salary. I'm like, what? Remember the Star Wars quote? Han Solo says, I don't know. I can imagine quite a lot. <laughs> But let me tell you something, and this is not bragging anyway, there was one payday that I actually got in two weeks, a $6,000 bonus. One payday. So I was thinking real small, if I could get $5,000 added to my salary for the year, I'd be pretty happy. And there was one payday, I got $6,000. And let me tell you what, taxes ate that joker up. But our roads are paved, right? <clears throat> When I ask you, do you want to inherit the world, you've got real low expectations. What I want to ask you this morning is, man, think bigger. Think about reigning and ruling with Christ in a restored heavens and earth where the dwelling place of God is with man and where you are co-heirs with Christ and where everything is right everything is good, and everything gives glory to God the way it's supposed to, that's the world that the people of promise inherit. And I want you to raise your expectations of the coming world, church. I want you to raise your expectations of what it means to inherit the world. Because it is a big, stinking deal. Those who have the same righteousness as Abraham by faith will inherit the world. For, verse 14 says, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So, if it was depending on us keeping the law, faith means nothing and God's promise is void or no good. Why? Because He said it was through faith that righteousness would come. So it can't depend on the law. That would cancel everything God set out. And why? Verse 15, for... The law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. Now, what does that mean? First, the law brings wrath. What does that mean? The law 
brings wrath. What's the purpose of laws? Anybody ever broken a law? What's the purpose of the law? It's to tell you what you can't do, right? And what happens when you break that law and you get caught? You get punished, right? Anybody ever been punished harshly? Yeah. Crud, yeah. For breaking the law? Yeah. The law brings wrath. The law is set in place so, okay, say that I'm driving up the road in a 25 mile an hour speed zone and I'm going 60. Am I going to get punished if I get caught? You bet I am. That law brings wrath. The law of the speed limit brings wrath if I exceed it. And that is the point of the law. Right? The law brings wrath. To maintain order and to keep people in line, that's what laws are for. What happens if you break the law, you're punished. What if there were no laws? In that same 25 mile an hour zone, would I be punished if I was going 60? You're like, no, there wouldn't be any law that said you had to go 25. I could drive through Sophia, West Virginia at 60 miles an hour if there were no laws. You could drive through Summersville at 80, 90 if there was no speed limit. Have you ever got a ticket in Summersville? Oh, just wait, you will. <laughs> what if there were no laws? Would you be punished? No. But since there are laws, the law brings wrath. That's what it does. Because the law shows you that what you are doing is wrong, especially regarding God and His holiness. And the law requires that those who break it be punished. That's what hell is about. It's for punishment for lawbreakers. And what brings that punishment? The law brings that punishment. The law brings that wrath. And the end of the sentence just reinforces what he just said. If there's no law, then there's no transgression. If there's no speed limit, you can't exceed it. So if the righteousness doesn't come through faith, we're in trouble because the law cannot give us that righteousness because all the law does is brings wrath. So if righteousness is according to law, we're in trouble. And we're going to stay in trouble. Which brings us to verses 16 and 17. Now, <laughs> I know that's a big verse. It's like voluminously big. Let me read it again. These two verses together. Since the law brings wrath, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now those are monstrously big verses. Verse 16 starts with the phrase, that is why. What is why? The fact that the law brings wrath and simply points out our transgressions is why this depends on faith. And why? Now get a hold of this. To me, <clears throat> in order that about that, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Those, nine, those next nine words are monstrous. In order that the promise may rest on what? I want everybody in this building that's listening to my voice 
Answer that question with the word grace. That it may rest on what? Now stop for a second. Righteousness comes by faith, not by law. So that God's promise may rest on grace. Now we have talked a lot up to this point about faith. And if we're not careful, we make conversion, we make righteousness about drumming up a faith. About mustering up faith. Okay, I will believe, I will believe. I'll read, I'll pray, I'll study, and I'll get a faith that I didn't have before. I'll read and I'll pray and I'll study. I'll witness and I'll give and I'll do all this stuff so that I might produce faith in myself. It doesn't work that way. So that God's promise may rest on grace. And what is grace? Grace is God's sovereign choice to bestow His favor on whom He chooses so that He gets all the glory for it. Now you could even try to drum up faith and get some glory for yourself. You could come to God and say, look at my faith. But that's not how this works. It has to all rest on grace. Because if it doesn't rest on grace, somebody else gets glory for it than God. And that cannot be. You cannot get any glory in this transaction on your own doing. You cannot. Or God's not God. If you are declared righteous, it is God's doing. If you are declared righteous, it is God's action. If you are declared righteous, it is God's power. If you are declared righteous, it is God's goodness. And not because of anything you have done. Not keeping the law, not being good or doing better. God's grace and God's grace alone so that He gets the glory. We've talked a lot about faith, but right now it all has to rest on grace. On grace. It all rests on grace, even your faith. Ephesians 2, we've quoted it six times, I think, in these passages that we've preached. You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. By grace, not works, so that no one may boast. You say, well, I'm the one who expressed the faith. Where did you get that faith from? That faith was given to you as a gift from God by His grace. You are saved by grace through faith so that it all rests on grace. All of it rests on grace, even your faith. In order that the promise, God's promise to Abraham and to his seed after him and to those who would be Abraham's children through faith would rest on grace. Grace is the final landing spot for all of this. Salvation, righteousness, inheriting the world, it all comes back to God's grace. And since it starts with God, it can be counted upon because He can be counted upon. Your faith will falter. Anybody ever had their faith falter? In the face of sickness, disease, tragedy? What's the first thing you say to God? God, why? That's faltering faith and there's nothing wrong with that. It's natural, it's normal, it's human. And I promise you, there will be times in your life when you will wonder, really? Is this thing real? John Piper says that he prays constantly, God, please keep me a Christian so that I don't fall away, so that I don't lose my faith. And how is that going to happen? It happens 
by grace. Since He's the one who promised it, since He's the one who produced it, it can be counted upon because He can be counted upon. Paul says here that it is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, which means it's sure for those who are righteous because of their faith, just like Abraham. So it's not only to those under the law, which would infer the Jews, but also those of faith who are the children of Abraham. Now, verse 17, last verse. As it is written. In verse 17, we have a reminder of God's promise to Abraham that Abraham believed, namely, I have made you the father of many nations. Now remember, he made this promise to a 99-year-old man who'd never had a kid. And we'll talk more about that next week. 99 years old. No children by his wife who had been barren. And I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Okay. Abraham believed that. And why did he believe that? Because of the faithfulness of God. And the good news is, to answer the question we asked at the beginning, it's obvious that this promise wasn't just for the nation of Israel. Not just for Jews, but for what Revelation refers to as those from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Abraham is the father of these children by faith. His faith and their faith. And then get a hold of what it says at the end of verse 17 when it says, "...in the presence of God..." in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham believed what was said, and what was said was said in God's presence. And what kind of God is this that said this, that made this promise? Listen, this God gives life to dead people. This God calls into existence the things that do not exist. And that's so much more awesome than we can pretend to understand. Abraham believed in a God who was so much greater than himself. A God to whom death is nothing. Death can be overcome by bringing a dead person back to life. Anybody ever heard of Jairus' daughter? She was dead. Jesus walked in and said, little girl, get up. She was dead. And Jesus walked in and said, little girl, get up. And she got up. Lazarus? Been in the tomb how long? Long enough to start stinking. Three days? Jesus walks up says, Roll that stone away. Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man came back to life. And we yawn in the face of a God who can do that. We say, it's no big deal. Give it a shot. You try it. Next funeral you go to, try calling the person out of the coffin. See how that works out for you. They might fit you for a straitjacket. Because that doesn't happen. That's outside the laws of nature. Let me tell you something. We serve a God who exists outside the laws of nature. And Abraham looked this God in the eye, proverbially, and he said, I believe you can do whatever you want to do. And if you want to make me the father of many nations when I'm 99 and my wife is 89, when I turn 100 and my wife turns 90, I believe that you can do that. You okay with God calling things 
back from the dead to life? How about a God who speaks things into existence? A God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Genesis 1. It flabbergasts me. Okay, I just wanted to say that word. It, uh, it amazes me that people will come up and say something stupid. You really believe that God flooded the whole earth? I'm like, listen, I believe that God spoke this world into existence. I believe God spoke and the universe appeared. So you think I have a problem with Him flooding the earth? We serve a God. Abraham served and believed a God who spoke and stars appeared. Who spoke and the earth appeared. Who spoke and birds started flying out of nothing. Now, do you think Abraham would have a problem believing that that God could make him a father at 100 years old? We've got our faith really out of perspective. We look at our checkbook and think, God can't do this. We look at our loved one in the hospital and we think, God can't do this. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we think, God can't do this. And He's the God who calls things into existence that do not exist. You really believe the Bible? Yeah, I'm crazy enough to believe that there's a God who created everything by speaking. I believe that He could preserve a book for me to reveal Himself to me. Yeah, I believe the Bible. Every stinking word of it. Because I serve a God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. You think a book's hard for Him? Abraham's faith was not a blind faith, hoping that things would work out in the end. Abraham's faith was in the only omnipotent being in the universe. If God said it, though it had not been heard of before, it could still happen. Period. You say, you're going to make me the father of many nations, God? So be it. You can do it. You say that righteousness comes by grace through faith? So be it. You say, let there be light? So be it. You say that you've set your love on me due to nothing that I've ever done? So be it. And with Abraham we say, so be it, God. Let's wrap it up. I know it's a lot of information, a lot to process. If you can, go back and listen to the message again. It's a lot of stuff. What do we do with it? Let's apply it. For all this information, you get four points of application. Okay? Three is normal. This is supersized. You get supersized application today. No upcharge. Okay? You're welcome. An extra point of application. We're going to upsize your fries this morning for free. First, I want to remind you of the order of faith and works. Both are necessary, but only one is necessary for your salvation to occur. Which one precedes which one? Faith precedes works. If you try to work for your salvation, you will live a miserable existence. If you get that order out of order and you try to work to obtain your faith, you will live a life of slavery and bondage for the rest of your days. And you will never be certain that God is pleased with you. Now, 
If you have faith first and believe that God declared you righteous because of that faith in the finished work of Jesus, works will be produced. That's how it works. Faith produces works. Works do not produce faith. They do not. And I lived most of my childhood and most of my early adulthood trying to work to please God. You can not do it. It's impossible. So please know that. Faith precedes works. Don't live in bondage trying to work for God's favor. Express faith in the finished work of Jesus to secure your favor with God. Second, do you have, and if you don't, you should have, your faith should produce in you a concern for the nations because God has a concern for the nations. What did He make Abraham the father of? All the nations. What do I care about what goes on in Rwanda? What do I care about what goes on in France? I care because the glory of God is to be proclaimed among the nations. I long, I desire to be a part of a group of people whose heart is for the nations. Our homes are super important and our homes will be the sounding board with which we launch into the nations with. I long to be a part of a group of people whose heart and concern is for the nations, who lay down their life for the nations, who proclaim the gospel of grace through faith to all the nations. And that's something we should be praying toward and working toward. I am thankful that we support missionaries in different nations. And I would love for us to sit around at lunch consistently and talk about how are we going to reach the nations? How are we going to proclaim the glory of God to all the nations? So if you don't have a desire for the nations, a point of application could be start praying for it. God, give me a concern for the nations because you have the nations on your heart. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, he said. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Third application point, and we touched on it already. Church, Christian, you will inherit the world. And that is such good news. We had that Christmas concert last night and my wife, God bless her soul, worked her tail off to make that happen. And there were times when she was very discouraged, times when she thought maybe we should just cancel it. She pressed on for the reward that was waiting at the end. Listen guys, hear me say this. Life is hard. It's hard. The situation that you're in right now is probably hard. There's something worth waiting for. You, Christian, not if you're not a Christian, I'm not speaking to you. This point application is not for you. I want you to draw joy and hope in knowing that one day I will inherit the world. God has promised it. God who cannot lie has promised it that if I've placed my faith 
in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I, I inherit the world. And that's good. So much better than we understand. Know the order of faith and works. Have a concern for the nations. Know that you will inherit the world. And point four, I want you to process and I want you to understand who God is in this passage we just read. We're talking about a God to whom death is nothing. We're talking about a God who calls things into existence that did not previously exist. And when I say call, He speaks it and it's done. We're talking about a God who makes promises to His people. We're talking about a God who keeps those promises that He makes to His people. God who cannot lie. And listen, this is the last thing I want you to know about this God in this application point. We serve a God of grace. Put down your deadly doings and let it all rest on grace. Stop trying so hard and look at God and say, I trust in your grace. Your unmerited favor. Nothing I could ever do to deserve it. God, I believe you who reign over life and death, you who call things into existence that were not there previously, by grace you have chosen to lavish your love on me. And the point of this application point is rest on that. Just like you're resting all your weight in the seat that you're in today, plop down in God's grace and rest. We worry and we fret and we work so hard and God is saying, come find your rest in my grace. All your burdens, give them to Him. Casting all our cares upon Him. Why? Because He cares for us. Guys, that's grace. You can't earn that. You can't deserve it. And it's the best news in the universe. So rest in it. This holiday season, this Advent season, this Christmas season, everybody's busy, chickens, heads cut off, everybody's... Rest. Right now. Right now. Rest yourself upon the God of grace. Let's pray. God, we believe that You call things into existence that did not previously exist. God, we believe that You are able to do what You say that You will do. And God, we believe that You have chosen to lavish Your grace and Your love upon Your people. And the world to come is going to be fantastic. We will inherit the world, but right now, God, speak Your grace into our lives. And for those people who sit here this morning that don't know about that grace, may they know that You offer the gift of forgiveness for their sins. May they know that they're sinners, but that You offer forgiveness for sins through what Jesus did. Jesus who was God in the flesh, who was born of a virgin, 
what we celebrate this Christmas time, lived a perfect life, and then went to a cross to bear the punishment for our sins. He died, He was dead, and in three days He was given life again, raised from the dead, showed Himself alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days, and then you caused Him to be ascended into heaven where He sits now at your right hand, reigning and ruling, waiting to give us the world to come. For those that don't know that this morning, God, would you speak to their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit and ask them to come to receive the grace that you give freely, not by works, but by grace through faith so that you might get the glory for it. God, help us to rest, all of us, this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction and we'll be done. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.